This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by Thorne, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorne is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorne is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, Behind the Shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast, 
with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Dr. Tommy Wood. Now, Tommy began his medical training in both Oxford and Cambridge in England before transitioning to Norway and ultimately here in the US, where he is now one of the revered neuroscientists when it comes to both TBI and pediatric TBI. So we discuss a host of topics from his journey into neuroscience, working with the tactical population, the impact of brain injury on pediatrics, the power of sleep, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback. I really do love reading your feedback and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating you leave elevates this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Dr. Tommy Wood. Enjoy. Well, Tommy, I want to start by saying, firstly, thank you to Miguel, this elusive person that my listeners keep hearing about that keeps feeding me <laughs> incredible guests, but still hasn't got his ass on this podcast himself yet. So I want to say thank you to him, but also to welcome you to the Behind the Shield podcast today. Thanks. Uh, thanks very much for having me. And thanks for Miguel. Thanks to Miguel for the intro. And, and hopefully we can convince him together to show up because I know he'll, he'll have a, a lot of interesting stuff to say. Uh, Absolutely. Now, how do you guys know each other? So we um, we met through another uh, so through a, a mutual friend in you know with a, a similar background uh, to to Miguel in the sort of forces world who lots of I know lots of people know um, this this other guy but he's just like if you know you know but if you don't he would prefer that you didn't so wouldn't say more than that but. We uh, we got introduced into in the arena of trying to figure out a way to better um, sort of prophylactically uh, protect brains at high risk of traumatic brain injury or concussion, um, you know, before it happens, which is sort of a, this elusive field uh, left of bang, as as our mutual friend calls it, um, that, that the people are trying to get into. So thinking about maybe we can put together some some supplement strategies, but then also some other lifestyle related strategies to see if we can try and protect these brains that we know at some point are gonna gonna get uh, injured brilliant well i'm looking forward to exploring tbis and, and some of the uh, the areas around that before we do my real icebreaker is as an owner of two german shepherds you make the claim that boxers are the best dogs so let's start <laughs> with that <laughs> yeah so, so i 100 percent stand by that statement um uh, we have uh, two two boxes, and I think we'll I'll be a boxer person for life. Uh, although I, I I didn't grow up with dogs, we had pets when I was a kid, but I never had dogs. And then my wife was a, a boxer person in in particular, and she introduced me to them. And now I don't know I'd ever have any other kind of dog. That probably because I feel like they reflect my personality uh, in a number of ways. They're like incredibly friendly, you know, like look 
kind of big and scary, but are actually just, you know, massive sweethearts. And then they have two modes. They're either like 100% or off and asleep. Um, and I think that kind of explains, or, you know, is similar to me in a number of ways. So I think I just like really identify with the box. Actually, I think maybe that's why my wife likes me is probably because I have a similar temperament in, in many ways. Um, maybe that's really too much into it. But yeah, that's, why, <laughs> that's why I'm a big fan of boxes. Brilliant. Well, speaking of your formative years, then let's start at the very beginning of your timeline. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Uh, so I was born in Evanston, Illinois, um, as you can tell from my accent. Um, and both of my parents are academics and that was, that was how they met. They were both at Northwestern University, which is just uh, outside Chicago in Evanston, Illinois. That's where they met. Then uh, we moved back to the UK when I was four or five. Um, and I lived, I grew up in Bristol in the Southwest of England. Um, I had one sister, although I have two half sisters from my dad's previous marriage. Uh, one is now also an academic. She lives uh, in Maryland in the US. The other one uh, lives in London. Um, and then since then, uh, after addition, you know, my parents getting divorced, additional marriages, I have tons of half siblings and nephews and nieces and, and all that kind of stuff in families that stretch across the US and Scandinavia because my dad's English and my mum's Icelandic. Um, but I mainly grew up at home with, with one younger sister. Um, a, when I was 19, I went to yeah, university. I was an undergraduate at the University of Cambridge where I ended up specializing in biochemistry. Then I went to uh, the University of Oxford to study medicine, um, spent a couple of years working as a junior doctor uh, in central London. And then that's a, that's a, for those who aren't familiar with the sort of differences in the training pathways in the UK, the US and other places. So after your first two years, it's kind of like a pseudo intern, early residency type um, period. And so your, your foundation year doctor uh, uh, two years in, in the UK, then, then you have to start specializing, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So, and actually that's the case in mo uh, multiple stages of my life. I'm like, I don't really know what to do. And then somebody says something and I'm like, oh yeah, okay, I'll try that. And that was the case with medicine. I didn't know what I was going to do. I actually had a, a place to do a master's degree in biochemistry at Cambridge. And then a friend of mine said, you know what? I think I'm going to apply to do medicine. And I thought, oh yeah, I'm interested in health. That's, that's interesting. And, and sports as I was at the time, I'll do that. And then similarly, you know, I've worked as a doctor for a couple of years. Don't quite know what kind of doctor I want to be when I grow up. And then a, a former professor who I'd done some work in her lab in the summers as an undergraduate, she's Norwegian and had moved back to Norway and said, you know, so I met her at my mum's second wedding, uh, which was in Norway. Um, and she's like, I've moved back to Norway why don't you come and do a PhD? And I was like, yeah, okay, that sounds interesting. So I moved to Norway and I did a PhD in physiology and neuroscience, uh, focusing on ways to treat the injured newborn brain. Um, that was kind of my academic focus. Uh, but sort of throughout that period of time, I spent a lot of time interested in athletic performance, first my own, and then in athletes that I was coaching. So I was mainly a rower when I was at um, university. And then I was coaching rowing, but I was also doing fitness training classes for medical students. So I was doing fitness training for fo football, actual football, not American football, soccer, um, and uh, some things in a few so other different sports. Um, and then as I went into my PhD, I started to work with a, 
a company over in the US that sort of worked with athletes to try and improve their health in, in, in various ways. Um, and so I sort of kept doing that kind of on the side and I still do do that in, in a number of ways. So I work particularly with Formula One drivers right now with various aspects of, of health and performance. Um, but my academic work sort of continued and my day job is as a professor of pediatrics and neuroscience and I look at ways to treat brain injury again in newborn babies, um, in p- the pediatric population, but also I do traumatic brain injury work and then also neurodegenerative and cognitive decline work. So kind of trying to figure out how do we keep the brain and body healthy and functioning for as long as possible across the entire lifespan. That's kind of that small area is what I'm particularly interested in. Well, I mean, there's so much to unpack there. Um, your actual focal work now is so pertinent to a lot of the people that are listening. But I want to kind of reverse engineer a little bit. I'm sure some of the areas that you find yourself kind of overlapping with are mental health and a real kind of common denominator, a truth that has come out of almost 700 interviews now is the impact of childhood trauma on mental health later in life or obviously young life too. Um, when you look back at the multiple marriages that you kind of grew up in uh, moving from country to country, what were the pros of that kind of upbringing and what would you identify as some of the cons? Yeah, that's uh, that's a great question. And I know you like to ask questions that nobody's asked before and I'm sure nobody's asked that asked that question before. Um, so, so first of all, you're absolutely right. And I think the more time we spend looking at um, uh, mental health, uh, genetic contributors to mental health, um, other conditions that maybe weren't you wouldn't you wouldn't initially um, associate with trauma like later obesity and other chronic health conditions like in you know vast sections of the population you can you can tie it back to to, to previous trauma uh, particularly in childhood and I will say that um, there were there were a number of benefits from so both of my parents were academics and they worked even more than I do. So they probably weren't home very much for large parts of my, large parts of my childhood and they traveled a lot. So we often had au pairs, you know, people who stayed, who lived in the house and, and, and looked after me and my sister. And there's, you know, some potential benefits there. Like the, I felt a slightly, there was a relatively hands-off approach. Like I, I never had somebody, looking over my shoulder saying, have you done your homework? Why haven't you done your homework? You need to do this. Like nobody checked up on me. It was kind of like, you're your own person. It's your responsibility to do the things that you've committed to doing. And I think that's something that's sort of helped and, and can like continued. Um, and I think that's been, that's been beneficial. I think there's the, the sort of the more recent, you know, safetyism approach of, of as people have, have called it, you know, where we try and hyper protect kids from, anything and, and and control everything I think is then maybe contributing to some of the issues that we're having with with uh, mental health in in young people in more recent generations so so I think some of that more like hands-off uh, approach can, can certainly be beneficial and I think I benefited, benefited from that um, but equally I think it's it's certainly possible that um, you know there's this sort of strive for perfectionism and this belief that you know, you're only, you know, you have these like sta- the standard metrics of success, right? Which are kind of sort of baked into the academic world. And I'm sort of listening to my parents talking about, oh, you have to go to such and such, you know, a Russell Group University. Those are like the, it's like the, the UK equivalent of the Ivy League, sort of. 
right? You have to go to one of the, those universities or else you're not really going to a real university or you have to study a, a science because like the humanities aren't like a real subject. And you certainly like start to internalize uh, some of these things and, and you, you kind of think that, oh, you know, I have to achieve X amount or do X amount in order to be successful. And it takes a long time to kind of unpick a lot of those things, which I think I have done some work on. Uh, and it's certainly translated into some sort of related issues with me. I, I really, when I first picked up an interest in health, which is when I was sort of like 18, 19, before I went, right before I went to university, I took it far too far. Um, I probably had what we would now call orthorexia um, and an exercise addiction and sort of thought, you know, people will only love me and, and uh, find me attractive if I have a six pack and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And um, it certainly took a long time to to work my way back from that, um, you know, decades. And you know, there's still always like this voice in the back of your head, which is like, "Should I eat this thing? It's not going to make me really fat," you know. Um, and so, I think some of those some of those kind of like perfectionist ideas kind of translated into that arena, and maybe some of them still kick around in my academic work. But I believe I'm largely cognizant of them and sort of have built some strategies to kind of navigate around them a little bit. Now, it's really interesting hearing you talk about that because I think there's such a obvious discussion on the obesity epidemic um, and then less obvious, but I think is growing now is the mental health impact of the obesity epidemic. But social media has definitely blown the door wide open on the amount of body dysmorphia there is in not only you know, the, the overweight and the obese, but the converse, you know, there's a lot of kind of narcissism and, and infatuation with looks. And as you said, you know, physique that I look now with this new set of eyes, 48 years old and all that I've learned from people like yourself and go, huh, that that's actually not a happy person at all. That's someone who's just constantly compensating through their out, outward projection and hoping that they're going to get some sort of, um, you know, like or, 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 um, you know, feedback that will, will appease them. But again, whether it's the person that's overweight, whether it's the person who's, who's the bodybuilder, there's an element of pursuing something that's never going to ultimately be satisfied. Yeah, absolutely. And I've, I've heard, um, you know, across all this spectrum, both from, you know, the, the sort of the, the hyper fit through to those with various kinds of chronic disease, I think you can, um, you know, I've, I've heard somebody say that it all, all boils down to who didn't, you know, the question of who didn't love you, you know, at, at some point you are processing these feelings of what is essentially some degree of self-hatred. Um, and it you know, manifests itself in different ways in, in different people, but you know, the core triggers are you know, often very similar. Yeah, well, I know I struggle with that even now. I didn't really get into bodybuilding and and was fortunate enough to not find myself in a place where I gained too much weight, but it was the self-esteem. And and I shit you not, my mum used to tell me the ugly duckly story when I was little, you know, and I'm like, when am I going to turn into a swan, for Christ's sake? <laughs> <laughs> so that kind of knocks your confidence when even your own mum's like, yeah, you, you might be a bit of a minger right now. <laughs> <laughs> So, well, you mentioned rowing. Obviously, the two schools that you're at, Oxford and Cambridge, are probably the most well-known um, boat race, as it were. Mm, Talk yeah. to me about your journey into that particular sport and what level did you reach? So, before I, before I, before I went, or I had my place, but I, I took a gap year uh, between uh, high school or uh, secondary school and university. 
and that was when I was sort of like really getting into to trying to become fit. And so I did a lot of training in that year in order to try and, you know, participate in rowing. And what people might not know uh, is that within, so within Oxford and Cambridge, it's broken down into colleges, which are essentially like fancy dorms. But you, you know, everything happens, you know, all the social stuff generally happens around college. Sports happens around these colleges. Um, you get tutorials in your colleges. Um, you know, people eat and live around these colleges. And they may be, you know, a few hundred or a thousand people, you know, and there are probably, you know, 20 or 30 within each university. And so the majority of sport done, um, sort of like intramural or other competitive sport within Oxford and Cambridge is between colleges. And, um, Again, one of the my f- favorite things about rowing at Oxford or Cambridge, um, again in the, like the collegiate system, is something called bumps, uh, which is how which is how they compete, and they do it in the slightly different format at the two different places, but it's essentially the same thing. It happens twice a year for four days, um, and e- each time, and you basically in divisions uh, of twelve to fourteen boats, depending on the university, you line up in your boats with a boat and a half length distance in between. So you have a boat and then a boat and a half length gap and then another boat. And you all sort of get pushed out into the middle of the river and then a cannon goes off and everybody starts rowing at the same time. And the idea is to smash $50,000 worth of equipment into the boat that you're chasing, essentially. Um, And this then happens if you hit the boat in front. Again, the rules are slightly different depending on the place and, and the time of year. Um, but if you hit the boat in, in front, you stop rowing. The next day, you switch positions, and then you do it again four days in a row. And that's how you move your way up and down the division is by hitting the boat in front of you. And then the position carries from year to year. And then the idea is to be head of the river, which is the top boat in the top division. That's like the ultimate goal. Um, and so when I was at uh, Cambridge, I was at Girton College, which is a, a former uh, women's only college um, that was quite a far distance outside of outside of town and we weren't great rowers but that was where I started started rowing and so within a year I sort of became captain of the boat club I was obviously very dedicated and spent 20 20 hours a week probably training and this is just for these small intercollegiate you know competitions that's pretty standard if you want to be good 20 hours of training a week is pretty much the minimum and then at the same time, I thought, well, you know, maybe I'd be good enough to to row for the university. And again, if people don't know, to row for Cambridge, you basically have to be international or Olympic standard. Same same for Oxford. And depending on the year, usually the year after an Olympic cycle, Olympic athletes will go to Oxford and Cambridge to do a master's degree and row in the boat race. Like so you basically, if you're not an Olympian, you have very little chance of making the boat. Although some people do, like people who've been rowing their entire lives. Um, but I got a chance to train with some of those athletes um, and coaches as part of what they called their development squad. So that was kind of nice. I got to like the experience of the high level, um, high level of rowing. And I got to, you know, I've sat in a boat with an Olympian. You know, I mean, that's pretty cool. Like I was nowhere near their standard, like no matter how hard I trained, I just, I was never going to be good enough, but you know, it was, it was a, ni- a nice experience. So that was kind of the, the level that I got to kind of good, good college level uh, at Oxford. I did one, one or two days of my rowing career finish head of the river. So like top boat in the top division. 
but it only really counts if you're still there on the last day. And we got knocked off the top on the last day of those four days. So I could never truly call myself like head of the river, but we were up, we were up there for, for a while. So that was kind of a, the kind of, kind of the level that I, that I hit. Well, two questions. First one, um, I got into CrossFit pretty early and when we all first jumped in, unless you were actually in Santa Cruz or one of these real hubs with these real experts, we were kind of fumbling our way through how to do these movements. And I've watched an evolution, you know, from good to bad to good again in the number of injuries, the you know, the the technique, the amount of, you know, weight and, and movements that are now able to be moved and performed. What was your perspective as a rower on the rowing portion of the CrossFit Genesis? Um, so it's, it's interesting because right when I was beginning my rowing career, I was also you know really interested in CrossFit. So this is right at the beginning of the 2000s, you know, 20 years ago, which is again, you know, you're, you're talking about Rob Wolf is still heavily involved. There's just a few a few gyms in California, one of the first affiliates. Um, like so, back in those days, it was just like this awful HTML main site, um, you know, for, for the WAD and like nothing else then no other CrossFit gyms or anything like that really. Um, and so I, I, I started to follow it then. I was, I was really, really into it. Um, and I've still sort of like continued to follow it across the years. Um, but I will say that except for a few individuals, even like across 20 years, I've never seen a, a CrossFit athlete use a rowing machine properly. Like, they can get some good, they can get some decent times. Don't get, don't get me wrong. Like, so like the standard, the standard test on a rower is a, is a 2k, 2000 meters and they can get some good times, but it's just like brute force and ignorance, which sometimes is all you need, right? You know, in CrossFit, all that matters is the time. And they're certainly not at risk of injuring themselves or whatever, you know, it's a, it's a low impact machine. It's not, it's not a problem, but I'm, I'm sure they could, they could squeak out, you know, some decent improvements if somebody showed them how to use the machine properly. So what are some of the common mistakes that you're seeing then from through your eyes? So the the um the the drive portion uh which is basically when you come from the front and push t- to the back of the rowing machine. It should look a lot like a deadlift like for people who don't, you know, understand it otherwise. And and so if you think about a deadlift you have to have your arms relaxed and you know fully extended, right? And then when you're picking up off the floor, you do this thing where first the knees, the, you know, the knees extend and then the back or the hips extend. And it's essentially very similar. So like nothing about rowing is in the arms. You're right at the front and you want to sort of think about accelerating the handle all the way through. So it's kind of like a, it's kind of like a squeeze rather than a stamp. So what you'll see is you'll see people immediately take it in their arms. And so you've lost a huge amount of length and rowing is all about length. Like the taller you are, the faster you'll go pretty much. Um, so you immediately lose length if you don't have your, your arms straight. And that's what people do. They stamp on the power and they take it in the arms immediately. So you've shortened your stroke massively. And then they also don't necessarily do things in the right order to get themselves ready on the way back. So normally like they'll start to move their knees first and then you have you're like lifting the handle over your knees in both directions but if you imagine if you're doing that in a boat you're dunking your oar in the in the water <laughs> up and down as you're trying to move forwards which is obviously not what you want to do so it's it's basically not using the correct body parts at the right period of time and rowing is all about your quads and your glutes essentially and then being able to maintain an upright posture so you do a lot of core 
related training. There's nothing in the arms. The arms are just like moving quickly around the back. So like su super loose. Like that that's the most that's the most important thing. So getting the order right, accelerating properly all the way through and then you know doing everything you can to get that sort of like long stroke and staying relatively loose in the upper body, unlike what most people might think. Those are some of the like common mistakes that you see. So if you go to a gym and watch people on the rowing machines, you'll see all of those things. Brilliant. No, I found that even in myself, I forget who it was now, but I, I ended up watching a video and realized that I've been doing it wrong by that point for probably 10 years because I started around 06, 07. And it was that, you know, uh, on the ball of your toes, heels touch your butt, super. And I, and I just had this epiphany, like that's not how I would pick anything off the floor. Why am I doing yeah. it this way? So yeah, <laughs> so thank you for that. Um, well, just one more thing, because you've got to get, again, a unique lens, multi, um, multinationality-wise, um, and then also performing as an athlete and coaching in the UK, I'm assuming in Norway, and then here in the US. Another resounding theme, and this really came from my own observation moving to this country, is where we're from originally. It seems like we don't get to the same high level of of um, sports specificity and achievement in the high school and collegiate age mm. but there seems to be a lot more longevity playing sports after my perspective is that we seem to break our children in our high schools and our colleges and then set them up for failure with wellness later in their life what has been your observation of that idea yeah i i completely agree um one one thing that's definitely true about most sports even up to the collegiate university level in the uk is that you do it for the love of the sport and, and and nothing else and so i so when i was finishing medical school i did a there's a period right at the end where you get to go like out into the world and experience some medicine in other places before you start your first job which we call an elective and i did an elective in sports medicine at the university of iowa over in the u.s go hawkeyes um and I showed up for the first time and like just couldn't really comprehend what is involved in like Big Ten collegiate football in the US. Millions of dollars, like incredible training facilities like I'd never seen in my life. And like I was there during like spring practice, kind of just like they just do some scrimmages just to like keep people sharp and allow some walk-ons to like have a bit of a go. But even for that, you know, not even like during the main season, if I wanted to set foot um, like at the field side, I had to be in full Nike Hawkeye gear. I had to be Nike compliant just to step onto the pitch. And I'm thinking like most college sports uh, or university sports in the UK, like everybody piles into one small minibus. Um, and you drive to some field in the middle of nowhere, nobody's watching, nobody cares. And then at the end of the day, you draw straws for who's going to wash everybody's kit before the next match. Right. Like that's when I, I played in goal for my medical school, uh, football team, like that's how, it, that's how it worked. Um, and it, so this is like completely different and, um, then kind of relatedly, right. You mentioned Norway. I think Norway is famous. I mean, I think they topped the medal table at the last Winter Olympics, right? And they are notorious because until the age of 12, you can't score or rank kids based on their performance in any sport. 
right? They play a bunch of different sports, do a bunch of different things, but you're not even allowed to compare them to each other until they hit sort of like high school age. Um, because there's this risk that you start specializing earlier and earlier and earlier, which then risks failing earlier and earlier and earlier. And this has been written about quite nicely by David Epstein in his book, Range. If anybody's re uh, read that. And he talks about, you know, Tiger Woods, Roger Federer, um, the Williams sisters, and then a whole bunch of, and then in other arenas as well, where basically a period of, uh, you know, m more sustained success is usually driven by a period of a much, you know, much broader experiences. And that could be related to sport or academic achievement. So like trying lots of different things, experiencing lots of different things sets you up for better specificity and performance in the, in the long term. Um, and contrast that to some of the sports that youth sports I've seen in the US. And again, this was, you know, I'm, I'm sitting in clinic, um, in this sports medicine clinic in Iowa. And, you know, kids are coming in and the parents like his knees hurt, but I need you to give him a cortisone injection so he can play this season of whatever, peewee, whatever. And I'm just like, you know, we, we need surgery to, to fix his patella tendons because, you know, his, his knees hurt. And to me, that's just completely insane. Um, what the way the US system works is, is, is this attritional um, process of training, which is basically you throw all the kids into the system, 99.99% get chewed up, and then 0.01% come out on the other end with million dollar, several million dollar contracts. Um, and You'll you'll see this. I've seen. I, I think the, the easiest way to access this and see this is in the the Netflix uh, series uh, Last Chance You. Have you seen that? So particularly when it comes to American football, um, these are kids usually for you know sort of deprived backgrounds going to junior college to try and get uh, a scholarship to a Division One college to play football so so they can get to the NFL, and they're like this is the only way that I can make money to get my family out of poverty. Like you hear them say that again and again and again, that's like the dream and they will, you know, completely beat themselves up, incredible injuries, you know, awful traumatic brain injuries, but they'll get up and they'll play again because like, this is what they think is that this is that, you know, this is the American, the American way, the American dream. This is how you get yourself, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And just at this point, millions of individuals have, have completely, destroyed their bodies you know in order to try and do this and starting at younger and younger ages so i think those are kind of the contrasts that i've seen between how we approach you know that sort of from kids through to professionals um and and different levels in in, in different countries and then you know obviously american football is its own thing because you only really play that in the u.s but when you talk about other sports athletics you know the, the Brits are particularly good at sitting down sports, right? Cycling and rowing. You know, we're generally <laughs> some, of, some of the best in the world. Um, I think so. I think you can reach those pinnacles of, of athletic performance without needing to, you know, destroy thousands of people who don't make it along the way. Yeah. Well, I appreciate the perspective because I think it's just an important thing to be talked about because I've, I mean, I've lived East Coast and West Coast here, obviously, in other countries as well. And over here, you just hear the same conversation from, you know, my peers in the fire service talking about their kids. Oh, I've got, you know, travel ball here and, you know, sports camp there. And, and through eyes that were exposed to sports as a game, 
you see that shift is is its its targets, its goals, its money. And you even ask people about travel ball because one of my questions as a complete layman is like, I'm in the state of Florida where it seems like most of the best baseball players in the world reside. Why are these children being bused to all these different states out of Florida to play these games? And a lot of these coaches are like, it's money. It's all yeah. about money. And that's the thing is if you understand that this is a money-driven thing and you still want to live vicariously through your child, well, then you have to own the you know the consequences. But I think a lot of people don't understand how the potential of not only injuring that child when they're a child, but how those injuries are going to affect them as they get to adult life. Yeah, abs- yeah absolutely. Uh, and I think that's particularly, you know, I mean, obviously I'm particularly interested in the brain, um, you know, and I've had lots of parents reach out to me talking about their kids getting concussions. How can they, you know, mitigate those effects? What, what, what can they do? They're already worried about it early on. And we know that, basically these things accumulate over over time and you only get one brain so each time it takes a hit you know you're you're sort of changing the the, the long-term trajectory and that doesn't mean that you can't intervene i think there's there's a, a lot of stuff you can do but you know when you're kind of forcing that much that kind of stress on the body that early on um and, and again sort of like the the peripheral body takes a hit as well so my my wife was a you know all-american sprinter and soccer player and then she um when she was and she had a she had a um a scholarship um to to college tore a hamstring in like the first year and then immediately she was like i'm out like just like decades of 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 putting her body through that she was like i've 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 had enough and 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 couldn't take it anymore and I, i think that you know we just have to acknowledge the, the, that, that kind of pressure that we're putting on kids and then also on their bodies and the long-term effects that can have. Yeah, I think the uh, documentary, was it The Weight of Gold, I think it was, is a great insight into the mental health impact of putting all that value on a sport. Yeah. Well, I just want to hit one more topic and then we'll actually get into your area of expertise. We're welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. That's how it goes. <laughs> um, you have another unique perspective um, on two countries, one of which I talk about a lot, which is Norway, and then Iceland as well. I love it when people talk, tell us here in the US, hey, this is happening in this other country and it's amazing. And maybe if we brought it into our country, it would make the whole world better. So Norway, for example, I had the governor of Bastoy prison on a couple of times. Um, and the way their prison system is, is incredible. Obviously, their education system seems to be up in the top of Finland being the pinnacle from what I understand. And then Iceland again, you know, phenomenal country. What are some of the things that you've seen in Scandinavia? And the reason I post this is we never hear, for example, in American conversations, left, right, middle, whatever. The question's like, why is it there's no war, you know, turf wars and gang slaughtering on the streets of Oslo or Reykjavik? You know, so there's there's obviously cultural things that are contributing. What are some of the differences that you see in Scandinavia that maybe would be great if we brought them into the UK or the US? Well, I don't think we can say that those countries are com- completely devoid of those problems because you know they're, they're obviously being you know ideologically driven terrorist attacks in both Norway and Sweden in in recent recent memory, and that's usually. I mean, the the most memorable ones have been driven by sort of right wing, um, right wing terrorists. But you know, certainly, you know, some of those issues are are are, are coming in. Um, I'm most familiar with with Iceland, where in general, you know, they've had a lot of immigration recently, and everything's 
you know stayed stayed the same pretty much as it has been historically, which is that there isn't very much violence or and isn't very much crime. Um, and I think there are a number of potential reasons for that. Um, one, I think, is so in Iceland, there's a, a well, you know, it's probably going to deteriorate over time as they have done in most countries, but there's a very well established welfare state. There are no homeless people in Iceland, right? And those people who are homeless or unhoused um, are basically by choice. If they go, went to the government and said, I would, you know, I need help with accommodation and a job, that it would probably be provided for them because there's so, so few of them. Um, so I think a system that really takes care of the most vulnerable in society is, is critical, as is um, a well-developed education system. Um, and I've heard so many people say things like, well, why should I pay for somebody else's kid to be educated? Um, and this makes no sense to me because you want to live in a society that's safe and educated and people have jobs and housing, right? And look after each other. So you should want other people to be educated. Well, they right? say it's that not... usually walking out of a church as well. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I mean, you were yeah. just taught about an incredibly kind person in your synagogue, temple, whatever it was, and now you're walking out and doing the polar opposite of these prophets that you've been adoring. And, so, and I, I completely agree. So uh, my, you know, I, it's funny because I've I've had people who've followed me on social media because they heard me on a podcast and then... I say something left-wing and socialist and they're like, oh, un unfollow. I'm like, if you actually listen to what I say, you would appreciate that I am a, so I'm a socialist and I'm not going to pretend that I'm not. Um, I think healthcare should be free at the point of access. I think everybody should, is entitled to a, a, a free and robust education. I think everybody is entitled to so, uh, social welfare so that we look after people who, for whatever reason, are unable to for themselves. And I think it's and one of the best and so like this is the point where people start stop stop start like start turning off and that's fine but one of the best arguments that i've heard for that system even if you don't believe in socialism which is fine um right I, many people are entitled to disagree with me for many reasons and i embrace that uh, and expect it um but i've you know i, I read this article where somebody was talking about, oh, you know, everybody talks about Scandinavia as this socialist ideal and this like wonderland where everybody talks, like walks around helping each other and, you know, you know, you know giving to each other and all that kind of stuff. And they said, and that's not actually always the case. So for some people, you know, if you are driven by a socialist ideology, maybe that's, you know, how you see things. But if you look at it from an individualistic standpoint, which is obviously much more common in the US, it still makes sense because if you have one single central uh, system of taxation, um, which is, yeah, so income taxes and um, property taxes and sales tax, they're higher in, you know, individually in Scandinavian countries, absolutely, compared to the US. I'm in Washington state, I don't pay any income tax. But I do have to pay like co-pays on my health insurance. I have to pay for other taxes. Like the total amount that an individual has taxed is very similar in both countries. It's just in the, in the US, it's like death by a thousand paper cuts. Whereas in Scandinavia, it's just like one tranche of money up front that you know, and you know where it's going and it goes to one pot. And when that pot goes to, when that money goes to one place, there's bargaining power, which there isn't in the US. So in the UK, where they have the national healthcare system, Drugs are like at least two to three times less, if not 10% of the cost that they cost in the US, because 
the whole of the UK, the whole like the whole country can go to a say to a pharmaceutical company, we're not going to buy your drug unless you decrease your prices, right? There's no option. If you want to sell your drugs in the UK, you have to negotiate us with us on price. You can't do that with the US healthcare system. So that's why like for any surgery, any drug, the US healthcare system the US healthcare system costs 2 to 3 times per month, 2 to 3 times as much for anything compared to the UK because there's no bargaining power. So to go back to the Scandinavian socialist ideal, it's in a selfish way, you get more for your money if you you do a robust taxation system that goes into one pot. For the same amount of money relatively to your income, you get free education, you get a year of paid time off for parents after you know they have children, you get a robust social welfare and social security system, um, and you get free healthcare for the same amount of money, right? So even if you look at it selfishly, you, it, it is better, it, it's better value for money for you in that system. Uh, and that, for me, that's the best argument for it. Well, I'm going to agree with you 100%. I think where the knee-jerk unfollow happens is the word socialism. Like I had a, yeah. um, a gentleman on who's a Navy SEAL and he came from, I think it was Poland, and he was under socialism. And that form of oppressive socialism slash communism yeah. is very different than what you were talking. I wish we'd, we'd changed what we're talking about to altruism. Because that's really yeah. what it is, altruistic, you know, philosophy of taking care of your people. And but it to, doesn't but even if even then it doesn't have to be, right? If you're only thinking about yourself, which some people do, right? Even then it's better for you. <laughs> yeah. So you could have altruistic slash go fuck yourselfism would would still cover the same. <laughs> but I do I find it maddening because people will come out, you know, with whatever religious you know, building they just walked out of, but then not walk the walk of exactly what someone like Jesus or Buddha, you know, would, would have done in the real world. And I think if you have a proactive healthcare system that is also coming from, you know, the coffers of the, the men and women in the nation, there's much more drive then to be proactive and keep as many people healthy as possible. When you have a profit-driven healthcare system that we have here in the US. You see it as an MD. I see it as a paramedic and a firefighter. Sadly, I see the end of life usually. There's no desire for preventative healthcare because you know, I don't care if, if it's called conspiracy theory or whatever. It's just facts. The money is in the sick. So there's no you know checks and balances, as they say, to stop that. So I've always said I think you know Norway's prison system is incredible. I think the UK's healthcare system is incredible. And, you know, whatever you want to label with it, taking care of, of everyone and not having the first person you see when you walk into an ER is the one asking for your social security number, you know, so they can start working your billing right from the beginning. Um, it is such an amazing thing. And I saw a study and it did apples to apples. And just like you said, the, the level of care was as good, if not higher. There were more beds per person per capita in the UK than there was in the US. The only area that there was a difference was cancer. But again, for my thing, we, and I'm sure we'll get into this, it's the proactive element that's going to solve the cancer problem and, and leave very, very few patients for us to actually take care of. But right now, we're not looking to, so to cure cancer because we're happy to throw chemicals in our food and into the air and into our water and everything else. E equally, for the, the thing about, I mean, we have to acknowledge about the US healthcare system is that the technology and advancements are the cutting edge of anywhere in the world. And we have the greatest amount of investment and number of academic centers working on this stuff. But it's 
only beneficial if you can access it and you have the money or the level of healthcare insurance required to cover it, right? So that's great for me. I have great healthcare insurance. I'm a professor at a, an academic institution. I can get access to that stuff if I want it. But there are vast swathes of the US population who couldn't. So having access, you know, just because it exists doesn't mean that people are getting it. And I think that that's an important part of that problem. Absolutely. It's funny. I just literally lost uh, our health insurance about a month ago. So I'm, I'm currently uninsured looking for, you know, how you uh, provide health care for your family as a podcaster whose wife is in medical school. So that's, that's a brand that, new. Isn't, I'm, I'm sure it's a terrifying prospect. If I got a chronic disease, I'd move back to the UK. Mm -hmm. I've always said the same thing so I can get my family back but you know I do everything in my power not to which is going to be the next part of a conversation I'm sure well so you you did this walk through medical school talk to me about that shift to um, neuroscience and then pediatric and uh, neonate neuroscience specifically yeah so so like I mentioned I, I'd done when I was an undergrad I was encouraged to apply for uh, a welcome uh, biomedical research scholarship for undergraduate students, which is basically you get a small stipend so you can go and work in a lab over the summer uh, and get exposed to to sort of to, to research, which you don't really do until you get into grad school or later in the UK. And so my mum wanted me to be at home during the summers. So she called up her friend who was a professor. This is the professor I ended up doing my, my PhD with. And she was like, would you mind having my son in your lab? for a couple of summers. And so that's what I did. And this is in this uh, arena of, of neonatal brain injury. And to be honest, it wasn't something that I was like super jazzed about, but it allowed me to, to do some work and stay at home. And I got a little bit of money over the summer and got to do some research. And, and that, was, that was all very interesting. Um, and similarly, when I went to do my PhD, I was going to be focused on Xenon gas as a neuroprotective agent, which is something we've done a little bit in this in this brain injury field. Um, and I was sort of longer term, I was interested in being an anesthetist, anesthesiologist um, in the UK and, and working in intensive care. So even though it was in neonatal brain injury, it kind of made sense in terms of the trajectory that I saw in my career, uh, because uh, Xenon is it's an anesthetic gas that's neuroprotective, uh, as well as being you know, despite the fact that it's a noble gas, so it's supposedly inert. And does a, does a few th cool things with glutamate receptors uh, in the brain, but like as I was doing my PhD, I actually got very interested in how temperature affects brain injury, which is sort of like basic phys basic physiology rather than sort of like more advanced like mechanistic uh, biochemistry stuff. And so that's what I ended up focusing on mainly is like what some you know, within this experimental model uh, rat model that we use. What are the factors that affect the amount of injury that that you get uh, both before and after the, the injury. And that's kind of what's translated into some of the work that I, I do now, sort of focusing on like bigger picture stuff, basic physiology, organism level stuff, like what are the things that we can do to, to affect risk or uh, response to a brain injury. And still during my PhD, I was planning to go back to the UK and finish my, my clinical training. But at the end of my first year of my PhD, I went to a conference and met a girl um, who is now my wife. And uh, so we, we had a long distance relationship while I uh, finished the next two years of my PhD. But then she was finishing up as a, a, a postdoc, getting her first profess professor position. And 
she does a lot of work in brain injury as well. She's a chemical engineer who, with an expertise in nanotechnology, so developing nanotherapeutics for brain injury, and again, in, that, in a similar population. And so she wanted to be somewhere where I could get a job, uh, where there's a medical school attached to a chemical engineering department. And so there are a few op options, Johns Hopkins, San Diego, and uh, University of Washington in, in Seattle. And so that's where we ended up. Um, and the, there's a well-known professor here who was my postdoc supervisor and is now a very close colleague of mine. She's called Sunny Jewell, who's a big name in the neonatal neuroprotection field. And I think one day Elizabeth like met with her and, and said, hey, would you mind, would you give my boyfriend a job when he finishes his PhD or something like that? Um, and she said yes. And so that's how I got my first sort of academic job over here in the US. Um, but then transitioning over, I was also, like I said, I was working with athletes. My plan was to go and do this sort of like startup digital health around athletes kind of arena, sort of move away from academia. But I did both at the same time for, for a few years. Um, and at this point, I've essentially given up on my clinical career uh, because I would have had to restart all my training from scratch in the US. And I had this this stuff working with athletes, you know, sort of, like, you know, these start, this startup company. And then I also had some academic stuff after doing my PhD. And I would have had to give all of that up to finish my training or start and then finish my training as a doctor in the US. So it just didn't really make any sense to me to do that. So I haven't been a licensed physician for a few years, except for I got an emergency authorization during COVID. I got an email from the General Medical Council in the UK and they were like, we'll reactivate your license if you come back to the UK and do some work. And I, I seriously considered it, even though it would have been, I mean, almost impossible for me and my family, but I, I really felt like my skills were needed and I did feel bad that I didn't utilize them in that way. Um, but yeah, so that's why I kind of gave up on clinical work. Uh, although I do work in sort of like more of a coaching standpoint rather than a doctor standpoint with some athletes still. Um, but that was kind of how that, how that transition happened. So to so some of it was just due to personal circumstances and then figuring out a new way as, as, as life changes. Just as a, a tangent, um, you sent me one of the papers that you were a part of um, that talked about the impact of underlying health on an outcome in a pandemic. Some one of my uh, my friends sent me a similar one. That was the first one when she sent it to me that I had seen covering this. In my opinion, through my eyes, when this all first came out, all the people that were in the wellness community, the you know, the fitness community, and nutritionists that were saying, "Hey, obesity seems to be a big part of whether you live or die from this," that was almost deemed as heresy early on in, in COVID. And, and I think it was so irresponsible because we had such an amazing opportunity to really educate the masses on underlying health and what they can do and give them ownership of that rather than take away all their autonomy. So through your lens, talk to me about your philosophy of the importance of underlying health, not only this last pandemic we went through, but for future ones as well. Yeah, this was... Uh, a friend and I, uh, Gudmund Johansson, he's a he's an emergency medicine physician in Iceland. We we wrote this editorial for the Li Wiley's Lifestyle Medicine Journal right at the beginning uh, of the pandemic. And even then, there was you know some data coming out of intensive care units in the UK that, that we focused on because it's a British journal, showing that you know, maybe there was a skew in um, you know prevalence of obesity and underlying health conditions like diabetes um, in those who are, who are in intensive care uh, with uh, severe COVID-19. And there's actually, 
um, a whole bunch of evidence that kind of comes together that says that as your metabolic health worsens, um, you see these shifts in the immune system that then result in the, the, the process that they were seeing, which is that as like a secondary um, overactivation of the immune system that was, that was happening in individuals with underlying health conditions, but yeah, particularly around metabolic health, you know, and then that's what was driving. And so it's, so it's, it's an overactivation of the immune system in response to the virus. Cause it, it doesn't, it didn't, it wouldn't get the virus early on. So there's like a reduced function in terms of the initial response, then this sort of like hyperactivation later. And you see this in animal models of, um, you know, of these conditions as well. And then you see it in humans and, you know, this is a, you know, it was a lifestyle medicine journal. So we were basically arguing that if we were trying to put and prevent this in the future, then this is where we should be focusing, right? As in a prevention standpoint. And you see very similar things. So it's not just COVID. You saw similar things with um, SARS and MERS. So previous coronavirus, you know, s- severe coronavirus illnesses. But then you also see it with flu, again, both in humans and uh, in animal models. So basically saying that, yes, you know, there are a whole bunch of other things that are important. Uh, you know, some of which some of which were done, but improving the health at the population level is is probably the best way to to minimize this this happening in the future. And I focus on um, metabolic health, so like hard markers, you know, of your blood sugar regulation, lipids, blood pressure, right? So things that contribute to the metabolic syndrome. So if people haven't heard of the metabolic syndrome or don't know the components, it's a low HDL cholesterol, high triglycerides, high blood sugar, high blood pressure, and then a, a large waist circumference. So I'm not too concerned about obesity. I think one of the, you know, just, just on its own. Um, and I think one of the, some of the pushback against focusing on that as, as part of the response was, be, was because it sort of got tied into this long history of fat shaming that, that has happened both on social media and within, um, you know, he- within healthcare, which is its own form of trauma and is damaging to those individuals who experience it. So you have to kind of separate out, well, what are the underlying metabolic effects and problems versus the, you know, how, how do I treat the person who looks a certain way? And I think we have to separate those out because both of those things are true. Um, so if you focus on harder markers like blood pressure, bl- blood sugar, um, there was a study that used data from the UK Biobank, which is a big population data set in the US that showed that each individual component of metabolic syndrome was associated with increased risk of death from COVID. So you can kind of see there's these direct links between underlying health and then outcomes in that kind of pandemic situation. But also we know those things are predictors of heart disease, cognitive decline, cancer. There's a whole bunch of stuff that comes downstream of that. Um, and then you you know you need to think about the things that you need to tick off to, to maybe present some of that. So, or prevent some of that. So improving diet quality, improving sleep, movement, uh, social connection is a really important part of immune function and, and long-term, you know, uh, health. So you can kind of tie this line. To, so like we used COVID because that was the thing that was the forefront of everybody's minds to kind of think about it. But we know that the, you know, these aspects of underlying health are critical for pretty much any chronic disease uh, you might care to worry about. And we also know there's a, there's a number of lifestyle and environmental um, things that you can manipulate in order to improve that. The other side of that, and again, you get, you get accused of this a lot if you're, if you focus on, uh, life. So lifestyle, the lifestyle medicine movement has got a lot of criticism because 
they say that it doesn't um, include social determinants of health, right? And so obviously the environment that you're born into, you probably don't have any choice over, probably you know drives your diet, your access to healthcare, um, your, your, you know, your exposure to pollutants, uh, chronic stresses. And that's completely true. You know, one of the best predictors of mortality and disease in the U in the UK is um, something called the social deprivation index, which is essentially just a measure of socioeconomic status. So that's where uh, you know a socialized national healthcare system should come into play because everybody should have equal access to those things. Um, and so, if you you can and should do it in an, in an equitable manner, but you just have to you know, initiate it and make it accessible to people and make it easy for people to institute. Um, and again, I think that's more likely to happen in the UK than I think it is in the US, um, just because there's no system that's going to pay for that. I mean, we may get to a point where Medicare and Medicaid care about prevention because it's going to save the government money. But in, in the in the private healthcare side, there's just no drive to do that unless you can show them that they will save them money in the long term. Yeah, well, I appreciate your your um, perspective on that. And I think that's another kind of tool I'm going to put in my toolbox because I do talk about obesity. And obviously, you know, more often than not, that's going to come along with all those markers that you said. But by talking about the markers rather than the BMI, you're kind of taking away a little bit of that hypersensitivity to the fat shaming thing. And you, know, you reverse engineer fat shaming. It's just horrible people being nasty about other human beings most yeah. people want people to lose weight out of kindness and compassion especially if you spent your career pulling sheets over dead obese people you know you know the, sadly the outcome but i think what was so irresponsible was all the things you listed that improve mental and physical wellness were exactly what was withheld from so many people and in that environment is something i've talked about two years from now we should have people in the schools cooking real food again. All the soda machines and fast food should have been kicked out of our schools. PE programs should have been bolstered. Yeah. But the opposite happened. So that's, you know, I think it's people like you and so many other voices on here that people need to hear until we can slowly educate enough people to to push back and demand that in their own communities. Yeah, absolutely. I think it, it needs both like top-down and bottom-up approaches and so I'm a, I'm a big fan of everybody having their own sphere of influence so if you can help one other person or support other, one other person right then th there's a domino effect there but equally you know particularly for certain uh, certain groups within a population you're going to need sort of wide-scale investment at the the government or local level to to help sort of you know raise the raise the floor as well absolutely well i would love to kind of do a chronological walkthrough with the brain itself. So you talked about neonate. Let me go even prior to that. I've had many discussions on here again about, sadly, I think the philosophy of health in pregnancy is kind of skewed, especially here in the US again, where it's accepted to put on a large amount of weight to, you know, dive into the processed food. And I'm obviously, you know, painting tarring with, with the same brush but there doesn't seem to be a lot of encouragement for certain nutrition in pregnancy to encourage movement still um so what are some of the factors that contribute to a healthy brain in pregnancy obviously of, of the child and then what are maybe some of the the mistakes or myths that are actually contributing to an unhealthy child the i guess but the, the nice thing but then the potentially frustrating thing about this and i think like regardless of which stage of life you ask me about my answer is going to be the same um and and that's because those same 
four or five things that we talked about in terms of you know, movement, stress mitigation, um, diet quality, and sleep and circadian rhythm. Like those are basically the foundations of health and performance, regardless of who you are and uh, and where you are. And I think that's that's critical in pregnancy. And and we have a a large body of literature that um, tells us that that the health, well, maybe even the the health of the parents before conception epigenetically affects the the quality you know the the health of the infant and then their 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 lifelong and health trajectory and so this is the uh, developmental origins of health and disease um uh, theory dohad um and so so we know that these things can, can affect it and there's both um like social experiments as, as well as you know some like randomized control trials that have looked at some of this and so those those are the those are the critical things um, and, you know, we can talk about, you know, individual nutrients, omega-3 fatty acids are important, B vitamins are important, you know, minerals are important, maintaining, you know, good uh, metabolic health. So uh, maintaining good uh, blood sugar is important. And that's, that's obviously in certain ways related to uh, body composition and, and, and movement in particular. And I like to focus on muscle mass more than on fat mass, uh, because for most things that I care about, uh, including brain health, uh, risk of diabetes, um, you know, issues in pregnancy, muscle mass is really critical. Um, and muscle mass is the best predictor of a whole bunch of things above and beyond whatever your BMI is. So what's nice about that is I can give you things to improve your muscle mass and you never have to think about other aspects of body composition, right? We don't have to sort of get down into that road of fat shaming and that kind of stuff, which can be problematic because I can focus on a positive, which is muscle mass and movement. And so I think that's where there's a lot of benefit to be had. Um, and so that, that, that's my, so if we think about the, those, those four components, right. A high quality nutritious diet, again, that helps you maintain metabolic health. And this could be anything from more plant-based to lower carb to, you know, if it fits your macros, as long as you've got, you've got some, uh, uh, some reasonable uh, nutrients in there. Right. I, I think there's many ways to skin that cat and I don't really hang my hat on any particular nutritional, um, approach. Um, although I do think animal derived nutrients, eggs, meat, organs, seafood, like I think those are critical for the brain, particularly the developing brain. So I will hang my hat on that. Um, what's, you know, so, so we can dig into any of those if you want, but again, if, we, if we're thinking about outcomes here in the U S um, what's very interesting is again, the data looking at outcomes based on socioeconomic status. So there's, um, there's uh, some nice work that looks at like who even gets to sleep, right? If you're a pregnant woman, we know that sleep is critical. If you are working two jobs or you have um, a large family and you know maybe you're sharing one room, which is not uncommon, you don't get to rest and recover and sleep. Whereas if you're uh, you know well off, you have uh, somebody else to look after your other kids, you have your own bedroom. Right, you're getting paid time off, or you can afford to take time off in and around your pregnancy. You get a lot more rest and recovery. So I can tell you, sleep is important, but I can't necessarily guarantee that you're somebody who is able to even get sleep, even if you wanted to. Um, and we see similar things with um, around sort of like societal exposures. So one thing that's a little bit different in the U.S. again compared to other countries is the rate of preterm birth is is fairly high in the U.S. compared to other countries. We also have by far the highest infant mortality rate of any developed country uh, for, for a number of reasons. Um, and 
what you see is that the more people get exposed to uh, societal stresses and discrimination is usually based around race, um, the higher the risk of preterm birth. And the more you're exposed to those stresses, the, the higher your risk. And this is why black mothers have two to three times the mortality rate of white mothers in the US. It's why black infants have two to three times the rate of mortality compared to white infants in the US. And so, I, you know, it's important to talk about nutrition and, and sleep and, and movement, and those are critical. But there are these, you know, higher drivers that are really driving the poor outcomes or the majority of the poor outcomes in the US. Uh, and, you know, the, the individuals who have the opportunity to eat a nutritious diet and move and sleep and recover during pregnancy are not the individual, you know, are the individuals who aren't even exposed to those stresses in the first place. So there's just this huge discrepancy be be between, uh, you know, what people have access to and what people are exposed to. And that's driving a lot of those outcomes. I think you're the second person that's told me about the infant mortality. One of my previous guests, um, Leia, who was part of a thing called Group, uh, excuse me, BirthFit, who brings wellness information to to mothers, um, had talked about that as well. And it's it's staggering when when you hear a lot of chest beating and the the phrase "best country in the world," "greatest country in the world." And of course, you and I live here, and we're very proud to to serve this country. But you look at the statistics. You look at that we have you know three quarters of the world's incarcerated prisoners. We have we use three quarters of the world's uh, painkillers. And as you just now said, and we had the highest infant mortality rate, this shows that, you know, aside from a virus that sweeps through that was absolutely serious, that there are all these other things that aren't going away. You know, they're not going to, you know, run their course, as it were, until we actually start addressing that. With the mortality, I don't know if this is just because my vision is skewed because of the groups of people that I work amongst, i.e. shift workers, and or the fact that I'm responding to civilians' emergencies – but it seems to me like there's an increase in Down syndrome, autism, and some of the other developmental um, things that happen to our children. Um, what are the actual statistics behind that? Are we actually seeing an increase in health issues with some of our newborns, or or is that just skewed through my eyes? So I think yes and no. Uh, some of it is probably, you know, as diagnostic criteria and awareness has been raised, um, you know, sometimes it's just things are being, there's more diagnoses available than, than were previously. But like I said, um, so I, I could focus on something like preterm birth, which is a significant risk factor for autism, cerebral palsy, some of these things that you're, you're mentioning. The rate of preterm birth as a percentage of total births is increasing in the US. It's steadily increasing like 9.5% and now it's just over 10%. And at the same time, um, and this is a good thing, um, we've gotten really good or we're getting much better at looking after really sick babies. Um, and so you can now, so full, full term gestation, so a full pregnancy is on average 40 weeks long. What we call the limit of viability, which is how preterm you can be born and still have a you know, reasonable chance of survival is now down to about 22 weeks. So you can basically be halfway through pregnancy and give birth and that that baby has a chance to survive. But at that, you know, if they're that pre, you know, the more premature you are, the more likely you, even if you do survive, the more likely you are to have some kind of developmental disability uh, or 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 other issue. And so the rate of preterm birth is increasing. That's probably related to 
Um, like I, I mean, already mentioned systemic racism, which has its role. It's also related to the general health of the population. So obesity, diabetes, um, other inflammatory conditions, all of uh, your poor nutrition, all of these seem, things seem to be associated with risk of preterm birth. So there's like that that's happening at the same time. And then we're also getting better at helping preterm babies survive. And so that together, I think, can 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 be increasing the the burden of developmental disabilities because we're having more babies born at risk, and we're better at keeping those, you know, allowing those babies to survive. But then maybe at the same time, there's there's, there's then a relative increase in, in some of those conditions being diagnosed. Well, you talked about a pregnant mother, you know, sometimes struggling to sleep. The majority of people listening to this podcast are probably working shifts. Um, most of my career, I work 56 hours a week, so 24 straight, no sleep, and then 48 before you go back on shift again. If you even were allowed to go home, more often than not, it was more like an 80-hour week. Now, that is, you know, I'm assuming that's affecting the men and, you know, their sperm production. And there's a lot of female firefighters I worked alongside that for a while were working those shifts while still pregnant. So talk to me about the impact of shift work on you know, reproduction and then child development first, and then I'd love to kind of unpack the effect on an adult themselves. As far as I, as far as I know, I haven't seen a study that looks at the outcomes of, say, pregnancies in shift workers or babies born to individuals who did a bunch of shift work during pregnancy. Um, but so if we go more broadly, which I, I think is relevant, uh, we know that shift workers are at an increased risk of pretty much everything that we've talked about, obesity, diabetes, certain cancers, um, you know, probably because you end up with a mismatch in between like when the uh, uh, tissues in the body are stimulated to grow, like with feeding and during the day and repair, which is usually at night, but you never get sort of like those things being properly timed with the circadian rhythm. And that's, that, that's part of it. Um, so in, in line with that, uh, like diabetes during pregnancy, gestational diabetes is associated with an, an increased risk of, of certain poor outcomes. Uh, you can affect blood sugar in the baby, the size of the baby. Um, you know, there is some maybe neurodevelopmental things that may come out of that, although, you know, relatively rare. There's you know, a lot more women with gestational diabetes who have babies that are perfectly healthy, right? So I don't want to like create this, this uh, I don't want to be a scaremonger, but, you know, relative risks may be increased. Um, and then equally, you know, poor sleep and other things like that will certainly play a role. So I think there, there's a potential for there to, to be an issue. But again, what I, what I worry about is when we, when we highlight risks and that creates stress in the individual for whom those risks are pertinent when they can't do anything about it. Um, and like, so I, and this, that's relevant to, uh, biochemical tests, genetic tests, all this kind of stuff that we like to do to optimize our health. You can base you, you know, you're more likely to get a nocebo effect rather than than any kind of benefit. So I think that's worth mentioning. So, you know, particularly if you're a firefighter, right, you're probably going to be pretty active. And we know that you know a reasonable amount of movement and activity offsets a lot of the problems with sleep deprivation and other issues. And we know that having a higher muscle mass is going to be uh, a buffer against some of the issues you might have with metabolic health or blood sugar control. So I think, you know, some aspects of that kind of lifestyle will maybe offset uh, some of the potential issues. Um, there are other things like there's some evidence, it's probably best evidence in mice, but there have been a couple of trials in humans that suggest something similar, which is that when you're on 
when you're doing swing shifts in particular, right? Just like just like you mentioned. So you're on, and I, I remember doing this when I was working in the ER department in when I was a doctor. You work maybe two or three nights, then you get a day off, and then you're back for days after that. Um, there's some data to suggest that when your light cues and your sleep wake cues are uh, inconsistent, that's one way to put it. Then if you keep your food timing cues the same, it, it can help buffer some of those problems. So the way that I'd implement that is that breakfast and dinner stay the same time, but they're just like, they become breakfast or dinner the other way around. So you, you basically, you have consistent meal times when you're awake in both types of shifts. Um, and then you just you just don't eat during a, a shift or you don't eat during the day when you would be asleep when you're on a night shift. So you keep your meal timing consistent, uh, even though you're awake or asleep at, at different times. And that, you know, your food timing becomes more comp- more important when your light timing is is uh, inconsistent. So uh, that's and then uh, then movement and those other things, you know, if you can find a way to de-stress or relax, you know, offset some of those other things. I, I think I think you can build in some resilience to the system. See, the argument that I am trying to get this profession to really kind of, you know, clamp down on is we are so good at showing up regardless. I mean, as you said, you know, the pull that almost took you back to the UK wanting the help in COVID, that's the same as police, fire, EMS. But it's become a detriment now because they know that we're going to show up. So what, just perfect example, you know, the average person that works in the bank or the supermarket is going to probably tap out at about 40 hours for that week. An American first responder, more often than not, is going to work 60, 70, 80 hours a week. And that same person has to wake up at three in the morning, maybe drive to a house fire, you know, search the the, the house, come out and then start working, you know, a, a, a um, PD code. So it's become to, you know, to the point of, of insanity. And what I'm trying to get people to understand is that as you said, some things are you just can't prevent. Someone has to be in that fire station at night. But what we can control is giving our responders enough rest and recovery between shifts so they can get as close to normal. So what 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 are the the acute and chronic ill effects of you know sleep deprivation? Well, there's I guess I mean <laughs> they are they are numerous and related to all the things that we've we've mentioned. So maybe not one night or two nights of sleep deprivation, but chronic sleep um, issues are certainly associated with increased risks of diabetes, poor blood sugar control, changes um, changes in hormones. You'll start to have, you know, testosterone or estrogen tanking if, you know, uh, you know longer periods of time, higher levels of uh, cortisol, you know, the main stress hormone. Um, and that's, and, you know, that's, you know, things that you should care about, particularly long-term, uh, but in in the short-term, you know, one night of sleep deprivation has a dramatic effect on your cognitive function. And these are, you know, I, I am not one. I don't have the experience of being a first responder. And I have a huge amount of respect for people who do do that. Um, obvi- I mean, hopefully that's that's clear. Um, but, you know, for people who are organizing shifts, like if your first responders aren't sleeping, you're basically preventing them from being able to do their jobs properly because, you know, like, this is split second, you know, decision-making, you know, in the moment, you have to be present and, you know, cognitively sharp and you need sleep 
in order to do that. And yeah, maybe you can deal with one night or maybe two nights of sleep deprivation, but you cannot deal with that chronically and still be expected to perform uh, at these jobs at the highest level. So yeah, there are all these hormonal effects and long-term disease effects, but if you just want somebody to be good at that job, um, and, and uh, I think that's what's really critical. And if, um, you know, there are you now... The world is littered with videos of first responders, maybe primarily uh, police, making poor decisions. You know, things being escalated. Um, you know, in the moment, uh, above and beyond what is necessary. And this is, you know, obviously, I don't know anything about that person in, in that situation. I don't know what it's like to be in that situation. But one of the symptoms of sleep deprivation is hyperactivation of the amygdala, which is the part of your brain which senses threat, and then is more likely to, to activate your fight or flight response. Uh, and it's, it, uh, you get decreases in empathy. So you're less able to, you know, sort of actually socially interact with somebody, um, on a human level, you're less able to interpret their meaning. You're less able to interpret facial cues or voice cues. So a lot of, you know, you can imagine scenarios where you're put on the spot, it's highly stressful and you overreact. And a lot of that, there's a potential for that to be, you know, accelerated by sleep deprivation, which is obviously the the exact opposite of what you want. Well, and it, it's, firstly, thank you for that. It's, it illustrates the 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 parallel, two parallel lines that are so important, not only in first responder health but in the the nation's health, which is environment and ownership. And you know, sadly, those videos show this person that made the horrible decision. There's never a discussion on how much training did that person have, with their physical fitness standards and/or equipment that they had access to. How you know, um, how many shifts that they worked in the row had been held down to to do yeah. another one? Is there an organizational stress element? And and they may yeah. still be wrong after all that, but that needs to yeah, be brought yeah. in. And and yeah. right now, we're not creating an environment for our responders to thrive. We're creating it for to fail. And a perfect example. And I talked about this on a lot of conversations here, at least in Florida, there's this TRT, testosterone replacement therapy explosion now. And I know young, young firefighters that are, are on that stuff. And there's no discussion on, well, hey, this is a giant red flag. We need to give these people more time off because if we give them sleep, they won't need to start sticking things in their arm. They can just return it naturally. Yeah. And the, I mean, I, mean, I completely agree. And I think there's the potential for, you know, you're, you're adding like gasoline to the bonfire and that's, you know, sleep deprived plus, you know, whatever it is you're putting on, on top of that. Um, and, and there are some like misconceptions around, you know, exogenous testosterone. If, if, if you are hypogonadal, if for whatever reason you're not making enough testosterone, obviously if you fix sleep and nutrition and movement and body composition and nutrient status, you'll probably fix that problem, but obviously requires you to, to really focus on what's happening there. Um, but equally, you know, in and of itself, testosterone isn't necessarily bad unless it's really super physiologic. Uh, but if you are taking too much, there is this um, ability for testosterone to basically switch off parts of your prefrontal cortex, which is for, you know, uh, really executive decision making. So if you're somebody who is and anybody who's really interested in this should look up work by uh, Robert Sapolsky and look at some of his work on uh dopamine and testosterone. He has a fabulous book called Behave, uh, one of my favorite books of all time. It's very dense, but incredible. It's all about like from before conception, like what are the different things that happen 
in your body and in society that lead to you making a, a certain decision in, in a moment of time. Um, it's a very cool book. Um, and so if you're somebody who is predisposed to rash or uh, other behavior, testosterone may sort of switch off some of the pathways that you have developed to regulate those tendencies. So it doesn't make people aggressive, but it necessarily, unless you're again, sort of in really super physiologic ranges, but it may just like alter that sort of the fine balance between some of those decision-making parameters in certain people. So again, if you're sleep deprived, you're already on a hair trigger, and then you add some of this stuff on top, there's the potential for that to, to cause um, additional issues. But again, I'm, I'm kind of hypothesizing here because nobody's sort of really nailed that down in terms of what might happen. Yeah. Well, sadly in the fire service is hardly any, any, uh, you know, studies on any of this stuff that we're talking yeah. about really. And which is mind blowing seeing as we lose so many every year. Um, well, speaking of, you know, a, a legitimate reason for there to be low testosterone, let's start talking about TBIs. So the first thing, just tying into our conversation with the youth athletes, um, I had a guest on Eric Stevens. I sat with him and his wife and he was, I think he played for the LA Rams. I apologize if I got that team wrong, but he was um, based in LA and he became an LA firefighter and then started developing ALS. Now, I just had someone the other day talking about MS and the possibility, again, of head trauma contributing to that. So are there any of these diseases that we know about? Um, are we tying or is there any any kind of evidence showing that maybe previous brain trauma is creating some of these disease processes in the brain? So it's, it's very possible. Um, I think in certain athletic populations, there does seem to be, you know, like an over preponderance of risk for ALS or motor neuron disease, Lou Gehrig's disease, right? It was a baseball player, right? It was it's named after an athlete. Um, and it could, and there, there's a possibility that MS may also, you know, trigger some of these things. There's when, when you, so I, in a, you know, 10 years ago, I was particularly interested in, in multiple sclerosis because my stepbrother was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis at the same age as me. And we spent a whole bunch of time trying to figure out like, how can we reverse engineer this process to try and minimize his risk of long-term um, disease progression and relapse. Um, and when you model multiple sclerosis in an animal, what you do is you activate the immune system and then you inject uh, these uh, proteins from myelin, which is makes up the white matter of the brain. And then what that does is the, the body then starts to create an antibody response to that myelin and you essentially start attacking your own white matter. And so you can envision it. And, and I've like met with people who've had a significant neurological injury that then later on, it seems to be associated with either the initiation or the progression of multiple sclerosis. And so if you imagine a significant trauma to the nervous system that included damage to the white matter plus some inflammation, right? You've activated the immune system and you've damaged that part of the nervous system. So you're releasing those chunks of white matter. It's, that's not quite what happens, but to like sort of put a literal point on it, then you've done exactly what you're doing in a model of, what, of MS. You've activated the immune system and then you're, you're exposing the body to these proteins that you wouldn't necessarily expose them to. So I think there is certainly some mechanistic and then also some small epidemiological data to suggest that that's, that could be the case for some, some case of these neurodegenerative conditions. Well, then we'll just going back to sleep for a second, I know a few of the, the people that have been on here, including Russell Foster, talked about um, sleep deprivation also because causing demyelination of the, the sheath. 
Um, have you seen chronic sleep deprivation maybe one of the contributing factors to cancer and or some of these degenerative diseases? So I've it's certainly I, I I hadn't heard about sleep deprivation and then demyelinating di disorders, um, but you can certainly imagine a scenario where not giving the brain time to repair and recover, which is essentially during sleep, you can get the accumulation of damage that then may trigger some of, some of these uh, problems, and and that you know is very pertinent to to cancer. I think there's some data suggests that exposure to light at night in particular is associated with higher risk of skin cancer. But the idea being that, you know, you have photosensors essentially throughout the body of, of, of different, um, different types, even though most of it happens in the eye and the brain. But if you imagine if you're sleeping in, in, in and you're bathed in light, then the skin isn't getting the time to rest and repair as it normally would during darkness. So it may so right so you don't get this sort of cyclical uh, building up and then repair and recovery which should happen during the daytime and nighttime. So this mismatch between the ability to build and repair is essentially what may trigger certain certain cancers. So that it makes sense that that could certainly be the case. Now, with a lot of people who come on um, psilocybin, ibogaine, you know, some of the psychedelics have have been incredibly effective for those individuals. I also hear a lot of times the comment made that um, psilocybin or I just heard someone, I forget who it was now I was talking to anyway, but maybe one of the other compounds within ayahuasca appears to be the only thing that actually is is repairing some of these TBIs. Totally, you know, that that's all I've heard. From your perspective, are there any things that you've seen in your scientific research that could potentially reverse the damage from a TBI and or potentially sleep deprivation? So in terms of, I, I think there is a huge amount of promise um, in uh, the use of psychedelics in the, in the right setting uh, for some of the downstream effects of traumatic brain injury, which include obviously could be PTSD, other mental health conditions, depression, anxiety, insomnia, um, and which which are which are common, um, you know, are common after TBIs of, of varying um, varying severity. I think where we currently stand in that arena, uh, there's there's been some some uh, some recent publications, clinical trials, and then also editorials around that, where basically. You know the the current standpoint is that we may be overshot in terms of how much we really thought these things were going to be beneficial, and then we'll, we'll we'll we're likely to get too pessimistic, and then eventually we'll kind of figure out where the true balance is. So there was the recent um, clinical trial that compared, um, I think it was psilocybin to uh, escitalopram uh, in a randomized clinical trial. Escitalopram being a, a, a SSRI antidepressant, and they basically had similar effects uh, in terms of their ability to reduce depression symptoms. Um, so, I mean, that's very promising. It shows it works, but it's not like it was way better than the current standard of care. Um, and a lot of it really boils down to the, the, the sort of the therapist being involved in that process. Um, and so that's where, you know, talking through the experience, the set and the setting and feeling safe and comfortable and sort of decompressing um, is, is a really important part of that. So it's basically almost like a key into a different part of that therapeutic relationship with the therapist, uh, in addition to to some of the 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 functional effects, like um, you know, uh, t 
turning down the signal or turning off the default mode network, which is which is where you get some of these sort of like repetitive thought processes and you know maybe occurring. So there's like multiple reasons why it may be beneficial. Um, there is a lot of interest in terms of you know, and and we've even explored the idea of doing some of this in our own work. It's like if you have a, a brain, in, we we do some some models where we have like brain injury in a dish, um, and then you know putting some of these compounds either. Uh, psychedelics themselves or non-psychedelic compounds that are in um, uh, say like the psilocybes mushrooms um, that, that, that may be contributing to some of the benefits um, and so I, I think and they may stimulate like neurogenesis and repair and there's, so there's a lot of interest there but I think we're not there yet like we just don't know um, there's also a potential problem in that arena is it's going to be very difficult to make money in the psychedelic treatment arena so whether there's going to be that much financial push to really get stuff going there's been some early interest but whether that's going to continue to, to we get to the point where we really understand it uh i'm not sure um although i, I do know some some people working in this um arena like a friend of mine dave rabin is, is sort of like well versed in, in a number of these things and he, he's a psychiatrist um so definitely very interesting um in terms of like the broader question about repair from sleep deprivation um or traumatic brain injury. I think at, at the moment, we're probably at the point where the best we can do is mitigate the initial injury process as much as possible. Um, and there have been enough, so there have been a number of studies trying to look at like reparative treatments. And so far, nothing has really stuck. And, and I'm talking about across the gamut, not just traumatic brain injury, but also some of the some of the neonatal brain injury clinical trials that I've been involved in. Um, so when you're talking about um, a traumatic brain injury in particular, there are a few things that that I think can can or you know should be implemented. Particularly if you're thinking right, the concussion has happened or the TBI has happened. Like, what can I do right now? Um, I think blood sugar control is incredibly important. So we we know that large swings in blood sugar or having diabetes before uh, a brain injury is associated with worse outcomes. So whatever you can do to minimize blood sugar swings, you know, is going to be really important. And so that means when you're wheeled off the field after your concussion, do not touch the Powerade or Gatorade, right? Avoid that at all costs. Um, so, you know, and, and again, how each individual responds to certain macronutrients or carbohydrates is different from person to person. But I would avoid like really sugary, starchy things that might spike your blood sugar. That's probably like number one. Um, other things that, uh, are going to be important. Um, you could consider, uh, a ketogenic diet. Um, we don't have a huge amount of, of uh, data there. Um, but it's certainly very promising and something that people could institute if, if they were inter interested. And what I'm particularly interested in with respect to ketones, we, we think they may be anti-inflammatory. Uh, they may be an alternative fuel source for the brain that becomes insulin resistant. So it can't take up as much glucose after an injury. So maybe ketones can sort of overcome some of that. But when you're building your brain in the first place, when you're a baby who's developing a brain, you preferentially use ketones to make new myelin and make new fats to make new cells. So I think ketones are important because they provide the building blocks of repair. And that's what, you know, when your brain builds itself in the first place, that's what it uses. So it kind of makes sense to me that maybe that's something that, that could be useful in that setting. But I will 
admit upfront there's no like randomized clinical trial that tells you that that's the thing that you should do i just think there's potential that could be could be helpful and it also that kind of diet will minimize glucose excursions usually as well um other things include the the most important thing in addition to those is preventing yourself from getting a fever um and this goes back to the work i did in my phd and i've done a whole bunch since which basically shows and we know that in any kind of brain injury at any stage of life, if you get a fever afterwards, it makes it worse. Um, and that's because your brain cells have a decreased capacity to produce injury, uh, to produce energy because they're injured. But if you increase temperature, you increase demand. So you've created a greater mismatch between supply and demand, which can then accelerate the injury process. Um, in babies, what we do is we cool them down. We use therapeutic hypothermia after an acute certain type of acute brain injury therapeutic hypothermia has not been shown to work after cardiac arrest or stroke or tbi in human adults and there have been dozens of trials now looking at that but what does seem to be beneficial is it's not that you need to make yourself colder it's that you need to prevent a spike in temperature and when you've had an injury obviously like part of that is a big inflammatory response which causes you to get a fever so um you know, antipyretics, you know, paracetamol or like Tylenol if needed, um, you know, doing anything that you can to like stop yourself getting hot, monitoring your temperature. When, um, you know, in certain scenarios, there are, there are like uh, cooling collars you can wear. Some people try and cool the head, but I don't think that's, that would be the best way. I think cooling the, the uh, vessels around the neck, which go up to the brain, that means that you're sort of cooling the blood that's going up to the brain. That's probably better than cooling the outside of the head where you're not going to have as, as much of an effect. Uh, and there are, there are collars and things that can do that or, you know, chest ice packs, things like that. Um, and that can be important both if somebody's experiencing a fever, you can think about doing that. But equally, one of the other things that's very important is getting is returning to movement and exercise as soon as you can, you know, low level aerobic exercise, cycling or something or walking to, you know, based on, you know, as long as you're not triggering any kind of symptoms, but obviously, you don't want to get hot while you're doing that. So sometimes it can be beneficial to move, but also make sure that you're staying cool enough. Um, so those are kind of, in terms of like immediately useful strategies that I think people can implement, those are, those are maybe some of the most important ones. Well, you talk about your work with neonate um, traumatic brain injury. Sadly, pretty much every single infant that I dealt with as a paramedic, apart from one that was sadly killed instantly in a car crash, um, we're all victims of ultimately domestic violence unbeknownst to us sometimes at that moment um you know a lot of times we found out later so what are what is this gamut of tbis that you're exposed to are some of them more from from birth and oxygen deprivation or are you dealing with a lot of these kids that are actually either through accidents or abuse yeah so so the one uh, the arena that i have the most experience with is like an asphyxia event during pregnancy so or during uh, delivery so as some normally, you know, the majority, it's a healthy uh, pregnancy as far as we know. Then something goes wrong during childbirth. Maybe the baby gets stuck or, you know, sometimes the baby's born and then all of a sudden you, you didn't expect it. But but you can see they have what we call an encephalopathy, which is just an impairment of, of brain function. You can, you can assess it on a neurological exam. So that happening during birth is usually what I um, sort of have the most experience with, both in the lab and then... Uh, in terms of working with uh, uh, people on clinical trials and, and things like that. 
Um, so we certainly see less because I'm in neonatology specifically, we see less of the infant trauma because that might go to like a pediatric group, which is slightly different. When I'm working on traumatic brain injury, uh, the models and the, the individuals that I work with, it's usually um, older. So either adolescent or, or adult. All right. Well, then going all the way on the back end of the age range, then um, one thing that I heard somewhat recently is people refer to Alzheimer's. And I, I know that that even that term is kind of misused, uh -huh. um, but degeneration later in years as type three diabetes. And it yeah. seems to be repeated a lot. So what are, what are the contributing factors that are working against us aging healthily as we get into our senior years? So you're right that many people have termed Alzheimer's disease type 3 diabetes. And I'll, I'll, I'll agree with you up front that I don't think the dementia that we see that we call type 2 diabetes is Alzheimer's disease. I think it's a completely separate entity. Alzheimer's disease, as described by Alois Alzheimer, is monogenic, familial, dominant, mutate like single point mutations in genes that cause early onset Alzheimer's disease. It's a separate disease. Um, in my mind. And the fact that we've lumped them together has kind of prevented us, I think, really understanding uh, this, other, this other type, which is much more common, more than 95% of, of cases of Alzheimer's disease. And what you see in individuals with uh, this, uh, I'm going to call it age-related dementia or uh, late onset Alzheimer's disease, is that they have decreased glucose uptake into uh, certain areas of the brain. You can see that on something called a PET scan. And so what that's telling you is that the brain has become insulin resistant. And so that and insulin resistance is the hallmark of type 2 diabetes, but obviously that's in the peripheral body this time, it's in the brain. And th this is very common. And so you're seeing less glucose uptake in these areas of the brain, um, which you can overcome. There are some small trials now that say you can overcome some of this with something like ketones as an alternative fuel source. Um, but this, you know, at least part of the pathology is probably related to systemic health. And if you're systemically insulin resistant, which most individuals in the US and other westernized populations are, eventually this starts to affect uh, the, the ability of the brain to take up, take up nutrients. And then, you know, if you're not, if you're not getting the relevant energy, you'll start to get rid of some of those, you know, you only have so much meta, you know, so much metabolic capacity. You'll start to get rid of non-essential connections because you're just not having the energy to maintain them. Um, so I think so that kind of um, we know that if you have uh, compared to people who have normal blood sugar, people who have pre-diabetes or frank type two diabetes, as you go up the scale of sort of blood sugar dysregulation, the higher your risk of Alzheimer's disease and the faster your decline in cognitive function. So there's this direct relationship between how good your metabolic health is and your risk of cognitive decline. So that's kind of related to systemic health. And then what are the, what are the risk factors for that? You know, we talked about body composition, sleep, diet quality. You know, maybe there's some like exposure to environmental pollutants seems to be important, you know, a, a, like atmospheric pollution from um, like car exhaust or something like that. That seems to be, you know, a, a risk factor. Um, so, all, so like I said, my answer is always the same. The same things that are relevant to pregnancy and you know healthy development are also are also relevant to long term cognitive decline. The one thing that's uh, different, or that I would add, um, is uh, cognitive demand, uh, which is sort of an idea that a, a colleague and I recently wrote a paper about, um, which is basically saying that 
in order to maintain healthy brain function long term, you need to keep using your brain. Um, and most of you, and so some people are like, well, we already knew that. And that's why I do Sudoku because it challenges my brain. And that's not really the same thing. Um, so in order, again, I sort of have this view across the entire lifespan. If you think about what it takes to build a brain in the first place, I think that gives us lessons about what we should do with our brains later in life. So we already talked about things like, you know, ketones for, you know, repairing or building a brain in the first place. That's what babies do when they're building their brain. Um, but when they're trying to de develop that brain after they've been born, what do they do? They do difficult tasks and they fail a lot. Um, right. It could be walking, climbing a tree, trying to, trying to talk, trying to interact socially. Like those three things, motor skills, language skills, social skills are incredibly difficult things to learn. A huge amount of demand is placed on the brain in order to do that. And you do that in these little chunks and then you sleep to recover. And I think that is what tells the brain that it's needed and it's useful throughout and it's relevant throughout your entire life. But what happens as we get older is we start to automate tasks or just do things that we are already good at um, and become habits. So, so say you're a teenager, you learn how to drive. Learning how to drive is incredibly difficult. It takes all of your senses at the same time. And you're working really hard, you know, and you know you can only do like a half an hour, an hour at a time before like you need to rest and recover. But then eventually it just becomes habit. You can do it all automatically. It's no longer a challenge. Um, and learning to drive is probably the last hard thing that people do before they just start doing the same thing again and again. So you can say, oh, my brain is challenged all day at work, but it's probably not. You're just doing the same things again and again and again. Um, and so that kind of skill development, spending 20 or 30 minutes to kind of like really push the boundaries of what you can currently do. That seems to be, you know, what's really important is that kind of cognitive demand. And then obviously you require, um, you know, good metabolic health, good hormonal health, good nutrient status in order to adequately adapt and respond to that challenge. And then you also need to rest and recover. So like sleep and the absence of chronic stress. So all those factors um, that we know are important for ri you know, risk of long-term cognitive decline, I think they're necessary because they allow you to adapt to demand from the, you know, from using your brain. But if you don't use your brain, those things are going to stop mattering because you're, you're not sort of creating that demand. And the example that we use in the paper, because people sort of like maybe understand it a bit better, is trying to build muscle mass or strength. You could live a pristine life, eat all the protein you want, sleep all that you want, but you're never going to get big unless you go to the gym right? And I think the brain is essentially exactly the same. And you can explain it on like the molecular level, you can look at societal risk factors, you can look at, you know, observational studies, you can look at rodent studies, but they all say the same thing, which is that if you want to keep a healthy functioning brain, what you need to do is challenge it, um, and then maybe create the environment for it to uh, adapt in. And that's, that's kind of like the critical piece that I think we don't focus on quite enough. We say, oh, yeah, you need to stay cognitively challenged, but I don't think anybody's really sort of thought about, well, what does that really mean? Um, and I think these sort of like music, language, maybe complex games, um, movement that requires a balance component, because that's very cognitively challenging. Those kinds of things are the things that we need to do throughout our entire life to really sort of essentially tell the brain, hey, you're useful. I want you to stick around rather than start pairing back connections because you're not being used anymore. Well, I heard you say, you know, discuss this very topic with Dr. Chatterjee, and it really yeah. resonated with me for a few things. Firstly, my son is 15, and I'm just teaching him how to drive now. And uh -huh. yes, I mean, just keeping the car straight is all the, <laughs> all the effort he can do. We haven't even graduated to, to roads with other cars yet. 
conversely, my wife, as I mentioned, is in med school and she went in, she's 42 right now. So she's in her second of four years at an optometry school. And she said the comment just the other day before I listened to your interview, you know, I feel like this is going to make me healthy mentally as I get older. And I, and yeah. I just called her this morning. I said, I'm, I'm talking to you. I'm like, you're right. I've just heard it, you know, <laughs> the scientific side of that. So conversely, I myself saw at about the 10-year mark that this very, very exciting adrenaline-filled adrenaline profession became less exciting. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't that I'd seen it all or done it all, but I'd seen a lot and done a lot by that point. And so just like you're talking about, you know, what I would consider a ripping house fire when I was a brand new firefighter was what we call a nothing fire <laughs> 10 years later. So yeah. your heart rate doesn't go up and your adrenaline doesn't start you know, coursing. It's almost an annoyance. It's a nuisance. But it's that, you know, that, that, um, the, the, all the different factors that are coming in just aren't challenging in you anymore. Yeah. Then you add the flip side of the conversation, which is not having the sleep to process these new skills. It makes me realize why there is such a, a neurological decline in first responders. And some are able to thrive regardless. Normally, I think if you really delve into their lives, they're probably not doing the same brutal shifts that a lot of people are. But it's such an important takeaway, and especially as we transition out of our profession into retirement or next profession, that's when we see a lot of people struggle. Not only the identity of whatever we did in uniform, but yeah. that sense of purpose has now been taken away. So hearing you say, start playing an instrument, learn a new language. I, I myself now do jujitsu and I'm being humbled yeah. every day. I'm writing a second book, totally out of my comfort zone. I do these conversations and one day it might be a UFC fighter, the next day it might be a neuroscientist. You know, these are all exciting new things for me that I hope will pay it forward as well. But hearing you talk about the newness that so many of us kind of get complacent in our profession, coupled with the need for sleep to recover and process new skills, it really does, you know, scare me as far as the potential for for dis- mental disease in the first responder profession. I mean, that that makes perfect sense to me. Um, what I like about the fact is that as long as somebody has the the resources and, and tools and information available, all of these things are eminently fixable, right? The I don't think it takes much to um, join a, you know, so, so say you, you retire, um, well, I, I, hopefully wouldn't, you know, maybe you can put some like during, you know, during your working life, maybe you can start to put some strategies into place to improve sleep by, you know, moving shifts around or, you know, maybe imp- improving diet if you can in and around shift work, right? So there's some things you can do early on, but, there's also data that really shows that regardless of when you intervene, until you're really in like the late stages of dementia, you can at least slow, if not reverse, some of these processes. So I want people to be like positive about the fact that they can make a change and they will benefit from it rather than thinking that like it's too late. And you often hear people say, you know, so, so I, I wouldn't have been surprised if you're you know, obviously it sounds like your wife is not your wife is not one of these people, but it'd be very common for somebody in their forties to say, Oh, I can't go and learn new stuff. You know, I have an old brain, you know, old brains can't, you know, learn things. I just have a fixed number of brain cells and they've been dying for the last 40 years. But that's not true. Your brain is still able to adapt and be plastic, which is the sort of like the fancy name for for being adaptable and building new connections and maybe even new cells in certain parts of the brain pretty much throughout your entire life. 
So know that whenever you're able to, you can start to institute changes. Um, and so, yeah, if you if you retire and then you join a dance class, right, you've got coordinative movement, you've got some physical exercise, you've got some social interaction, right? All of those things we know are going to be beneficial both for your brain and your body, you know, and it, it just takes one thing to, to, to do that. So, so I think knowing that we can intervene, um, knowing that regardless of when we start, we can see benefit and knowing that we can do things that we enjoy, right? So maybe you don't want to do dance, but you do enjoy jujitsu or you enjoy yoga or you would like to learn a language, right? I think any of those things is going to be beneficial. Well, and I think that's the, the big, big takeaway, I think, from this whole conversation is that firstly, there are very few pillars of health that will contribute to your success in everything we've discussed today. And secondly, it's never too late. And I think looking yeah. at movement as play, which again, I heard mm. you discuss before, yeah. but I agree completely. Like today after this interview, I've got to go to CrossFit and I know we're doing a bunch of handstand walks and I'm 48 <laughs> years old. So it's hilarious to watch, but I have uh -huh. fun. I feel like a five-year-old again. I'm not yeah. really good at it, but it doesn't matter. I'm upside down on my hands. I'm challenging myself. I'm laughing when I fall over. Um, you know, th those, so I think that's the thing is, is refinding that child within you and <sighs> having faith in the fact that you are worthy of starting today. You can't get back yesterday. It's too late for that. But you can draw a line in the sand today and say, I'm going to start owning my health, whether that means leaving the profession you're in and, and owning your health in that way, or whether just doing some things on your days off or fighting for the wellness component where you work. But overall, understanding that just because someone in a white coat with a stethoscope wrapped around their neck tells you you're going to be on these pills forever, that's not the case. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I think that's that's uh that's the message that I'd like most people to take. And I, I think focusing on positives, things that you can do, uh, rather than some of the negatives, uh, fixed risk factors. You know, some of those other things we talked about earlier. Um, I, 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 for most people, I don't think that's beneficial. But you know, even small things, right? We're talking about you know, if you're really working on a new skill, it only takes a small amount of time for you to be really like pushing pushing those boundaries and and driving adaptation. And I think most people have have time and capacity to do that as long as they, you know, have the sort of the interest and resources to, to find that. And it's never too late, like you said. Absolutely. All right. Well, I want to be mindful of your time. So I'm going to throw some quick uh, closing questions at you, if that's okay. All right. Yeah. All right. The first one, and you've mentioned a couple already, but is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Um. Yeah, I, I often fall back on Behave by Robert Sapolsky. If people are really interested in sort of like basic um, basic neuroscience and physiology, I think that one's that one's super cool. Um, I, you know, again, it's related to what we talked about earlier. I've, I found the coddling of the American mind really interesting. So, you know, just thinking about how and, and you know, kind of related to this cognitive challenge that, that we've talked about um, and it's also important for physical challenge, right? You only become resilient and adapt when you're exposed to you know, significant challenge. And one thing that we haven't, that we've done less and less of because we've wanted to shield ourselves and others from it is we haven't exposed ourselves to people who we disagree with and who's, you know, maybe even their, their thought processes and thoughts we find objectionable. But that is, that should be part of the education system, but it's being, and the, the book kind of goes through why that's being stripped out of modern education. Um, because, you know, you, you know, you and I may disagree on some things. I have no idea, but I would still want to be able to have that conversation and have it in a, you know, a collegial manner because I respect your opinion because your experiences and background are different from mine. But 
we have to be able to be exposed to those things in order to develop the resilience and ability to do that. And so that's that's why uh, I think that book is really nice because it kind of shows where trying to avoid that conflict, avoid you know opinions that we might disagree with, has essentially led us to a place where we we now are no longer able to interact with others who think differently about things than we do. Well, just speaking quickly of stress, something I meant to slide in. Um, you in your previous interview with uh, Dr. Chatterjee, I think you used the word allopathic load. Have I got that right? Yeah. So that's the total amount of stress in your life. I just wanted to pull yeah. that out for a second because I think it was so important. A firefighter working a shift in America has a huge amount of stress. It's from the potential of what might happen when the call goes off to maybe some of the micromanaging in their leadership to obviously home stressors to sleep deprivation. And there's a misunderstanding of you counter that with just crushing your soul in the gym. So I would just love to, because I've never heard that phrase before. Talk to me about allopathic load and how that understanding might actually curate some of your choices on shift and off shift. Yeah, sure. So, so, so allopathic load is is basically the you know the idea that um, you know some people may have talked to you we talked about I heard about the stress bucket like you only have one bucket for stress and and those things can come from different places so it could be sleep it could be family or financial concerns um, and you know it could be like what, whatever's happening in your job uh, but there's this idea that you can only tolerate so much stress uh, with you know based on how much time you have to recover and sleep. Uh, and adapt to it. And what you see, particularly in, um, you know, again, I, I have more experience with, you know, uh, in, endurance, you know, amateur or um, uh, endurance athletes who who are, who also excel in other arenas. So they may also be doctors or lawyers or, uh, and I think it's very relevant to to some of the first responders as well, where basically you offload the stress of your job and life by crushing yourself in a workout. Um, but in many respects, that just adds more stress to the bucket, which is potentially already overflowing. So you need to um, be cognizant of where you know where, what what are your total burden of stresses, and are you you know particularly if you're trying to you know stay healthy and fit. I think we've created this idea that you need to be completely crushing yourself in order to be able to you know, get benefit from the exercise you're doing, which is absolutely not true. First of all, and second of all you're sort of adding to this total burden that you may not be able to respond to. So you may feel good, right? You get the endorphin rush, you know, you think you're doing good for your body, but eventually you know this, you know, particularly in the setting of a sleep, uh, sleep deprivation or other, other chronic stresses, or maybe, um, you know, maybe you're also trying to improve your body composition. So you're not eating enough food, right? Then, you know, hormones start to tank and, you know, it's going to start affecting cognitive function and mood and all these kinds of things. And so, it's just in that kind of individual, the high stress individual who then wants to do a large volume of exercise on top, you just need to be really cognizant of like, what are you able to really, you know, adapt and respond to? Um, and I found myself that, you know, the, I mean, there's, there's obviously a, a lower limit, but compared to what I used to do, I'm now bigger, stronger, fitter with less training. Um, and it's, it's because I thought I needed a lot more than, than I actually did. Um, and that's probably also related to you know what I'm able to recover and uh, and adapt to. Yeah, I think that's just an important thing for people to hear. And I found the same thing. I eat a lot less. I train less. But when I'm training, you know, I, I like to think the intensity is 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 high. But you know, and I'm 48, so I have to think about the rest and recovery because you know I'm not 18 anymore. But you know, 
we were kind of raised on a certain philosophy on how to eat, how to lift weights. And yeah. I feel like we spent a lot of the last 10 years unlearning the wrong way and trying to relearn yeah. the right way. And, you know, throwing stuff down your cake hole the moment you wake up all the way through to when you go to bed, it just doesn't feel right. And you talked about yeah. ketogenic. I don't specifically try and get into ketosis, but I naturally have found myself normally having my first meal now at 11 or 12 yeah. because I just don't, I've, I've kind of got away from that 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 programming that I need to eat first thing in the morning. And of course, my days look different now. I'm not on shift anymore. But I think there's a lot of myths that we have to unlearn and then, you know, try self, self-experiment and say, all right, how do I feel? But I definitely have seen the days when I've already come home exhausted from a shift and then done a workout, especially if there's a, a higher skill in that workout. I got frustrated and ended up just going for a run. This gentle yeah. run. I'm like, okay, that's what I need. I didn't need to be doing snatches and, you know, <laughs> throwing my body around. I just needed to move a little bit today. Yeah. 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 Brilliant. All right. Well, then on the closing questions, what about a film and or documentary? Um, oh, that's tough. I'm trying to think. What Have I watched any good films recently? Um, like most, most, uh, Unfortunately, most of the documentaries that I've watched have been, you know, terrible nutrition documentaries that clients or athletes ask me about. So I wouldn't recommend watching. Uh, I wouldn't recommend watching any of those. Um, yeah, uh, I'll, I'll fall back on one of my one of my long term favorites, which is A Beautiful Mind, um, which I think which I think is a, re- a really nice. It's this, uh, you know, sort of like I mean, it's obviously uh, fictionalized, but like the this kind of balance between being completely brilliant, but also psychotic at the same time. Um, I think Russell Crowe does a really good job in that. So we'll, we'll say that. Absolutely. Even the, the notebook is, uh, you know, lovey-dovey as it is, I guess, for a lack of a better description, that does a good job at painting the kind of, you know, tragic elements of dementia. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, the next question, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? So you've, you've already had uh, Rongan Chastity, right? So I want to get um, him back on again, though. So I, if you're able so, to help me work on them. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll see him in a couple of weeks. So I, I can give him a nudge. Um, obviously, Miguel, we talked about. So we should definitely have him on because he just has a completely different range of experiences uh, than what I do. Um Another good friend of mine who is particularly has particular expertise in sleep and circadian biology, and he and I wrote a paper on uh, shift work a couple of years ago. It's called uh, Greg Potter, Dr. Greg Potter. Um, I would uh, definitely recommend him too if people are interested in that. Um, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, I think one of the things of this obviously is, is to disseminate as much knowledge for free around the world as possible. But another thing, I feel like this is making a case, and the case is for the responders' health. And the more people like yourself that we have on, you know, as well as you know, all these different fields of health, all these Venn diagram lines overset, uh, intersect and the truth in the middle is we have to give our responders more more rest and recovery. So if Dr. Potter could offer yet another unique perspective of the impact of sleep deprivation and some proactive solutions, that would be amazing. Yeah, I'm sure he would. Yeah. Brilliant. All right. Well, then the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you, what do you do to decompress? Um. So m- one of my favorite things to do, which I do every day, is is cook. Um, and what's nice about that is that I can't multitask by looking at my phone or my computer or anything like that, which I sometimes find when I'm in the gym. So I, I mean, I also train uh, six days a week. 
Um, and then wrestle with my dogs. That's another reason why I love boxers is they're great for wrestling. So you're talking about movement as play. That's that that's something that I like to do. So maybe those things are the most common ones. And then I read I read every night before. So I have a, a bit of a bedtime routine, and part of that is I like I like to read fiction before before bed. If I read like papers or nonfiction, then it it doesn't doesn't create that sort of relaxing uh, environment that I'm trying to create. So non yeah, I read uh, you know, trashy detective novels or something before bed. <laughs> I've heard people say the same thing. So turn your brain <laughs> off. All right. Well, I'm sure people are fascinated and would love to to learn more about your work. Where are the best places to find you online? Uh, the best place is probably Instagram um, at Dr. Tommy Wood on Instagram. Um, you, like, more recently, I've been a bit lazy. So things just like pop up in my stories rather than in my main feed. But like when I'm on podcasts, it'll, it'll go there. When I publish papers that you know, some of my papers are like super niche neonatal neuroscience stuff. So I might not post all of those, but like things that maybe the more general audience might be interested in that, that those get posted there. Pictures of my dogs, if you like that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, that's probably the best, the best place to go. Brilliant. Well, I just want to say thank you so much. Um, you know, again, you know, Miguel always knows incredible people and here we are having this amazing conversation. So your perspective as far as all the different countries you've lived in you know understanding the different healthcare systems all the way through to you know the neuroscience that you brought to us today has been invaluable so i want to thank you so much for being so generous and giving us two hours of your time today oh, i really appreciate the invite this was a great um a really great conversation and um like i said i think you asked me a lot of questions that nobody's asked before so there, there was my novelty for the day i enjoyed that mm-hmm.